I was talking to you know a, a guy who's been out on tour for 20 plus years and he said to me and this really rings true is that Tiger never made himself bigger than the tour even though he could have and you know Tiger put money in my pocket and Phil made himself bigger than the tour and he was trying to take money out of my pocket so that's why Phil was so harshly criticized by his peers it had nothing to do with you know the morality or, or the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia is that he was fucking with their livelihood potentially and that's why they were upset Welcome to the Golfer's Journal podcast presented by Titleist, the number one ball in golf. My name is Tom Coyne, and I am pretty excited about what we have for you today. This conversation with best-selling author and Fire Pit Collective writer and founder, Alan Shipnook. This was recorded live in the Broken Tea Society. It is hot off the presses, recorded very recently. So if you missed the live conversation, you're definitely going to want to stick around to listen. And if you were in the audience, you know why you're going to probably want to listen again. So much good stuff in here. Alan takes us through all the recent drama about this great schism in pro golf, offering his insights into the Saudi Golf League and explaining why and how we are witnessing what is perhaps one of the great turning points in the history of pro golf. I think Alan would agree that it is. And he, of course, dives deep into the subject of his recent smash hit book, offering his take on Phil Mickelson's success and his struggles, discussing the many sides of Phil, and telling us how he and Phil's life have both changed since a fateful phone call last November. Big thanks to Alan for taking the time out of his incredibly busy schedule right now to talk about Phil and Saudi golf, etc. Thanks also to Robbie Vogel for booking Alan, and thanks to Casey Bannon for producing. And thanks, as always, to Titleist for sponsoring this podcast, making it possible for us to bring you this stuff. If you haven't put one of the new TSI drivers into your bag, I feel compelled, as a friend, to tell you to please go schedule a fitting now. Do yourself that favor. Be... Be kind to yourself. Go to Titleist.com. I mean, this is honestly the best-looking, best-sounding golf club that I've ever hit. And it happens to go far. And generally, straight. So, yeah. TeamTitleist.com. Thanks also to our sponsors from the pages of the Golfer's Journal. And they are Link Soul, FootJoy, Titleist, Oakley, Links and Kings, Scotty Cameron, and Charles Schwab. Keep an eye out for number 20. It's flying out. It's out there. It's, it's crossing the places uh it is going to be hitting your mailboxes next next week week after but it's coming it is i don't know i think it's the best cover we've done yet and that's saying something we've had some really good covers i think and the stuff inside it's not bad either speaking of things to read also very excited that we are sharing an exclusive excerpt of alan's new york Times bestseller phil the unauthorized biography uh it is up on golfersjournal.com Members only, another benefit of being a Golfer's Journal member. And it's really one of my favorite parts of the book. I think it really gets to the heart of who Mickelson is uh, in this moment of Mickelson tragedy as Alan takes us through the 18th hole at Winged Foot where Phil famously you know, handed the U.S. Open away. Uh, Alan was there that night in the locker room. It's an amazing read. So it's there for you on golfersjournal.com. Again, you got to subscribe, though. So do so. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading and supporting the Golfer's Journal. Please keep referring your friends. Please keep renewing those subscriptions so that we can bring you conversations like this one. And let's do that. Because this live golf story, live live golf story, it's moving so quickly and in incredible ways that there really isn't a moment to spare. Let's get to it. Alan Shipnook, take it away.
Live Golf. I mean, is this the craziest? The last couple days, uh, with the announcements, with with what's going on, is this sort of the craziest you've seen it in? I mean, you've covered the program pro game for a long time. Anyone that reads the book is going to know that. But this is pretty nuts, right? Yeah, I mean, ironically, it it kind of um, harkens back to when I was just starting the beat in the in the early '90s when when Greg Norman had had birthed the idea of, of this world tour, and right. he had Rupert Murdoch and Fox where they were going to finance it, and um, he got completely out maneuvered by Tim Fincham, who was a very smooth operator, um, and you know had a, a background as a political flack and as a lawyer and. Uh, he basically stole, or you could say co-opted, or maybe was inspired by Norman's idea, created the World Golf Championships, created the President's Cup, and Norman's been embittered for three decades. He's finally exacting his revenge. And uh, so, you know, that that was an interesting moment in the, in the early to mid-90s when all that was going down. But this is a whole different kettle of fish. I mean, Norman's thing was just conceptual. Uh, the Saudis, it's happening. And in fact, to your point about this being a busy moment, I just decided this morning I'm going to fly over to London and and cover the tournament. So um, I'm scrambling to get flights and get get organized, but it's just too big. It, I mean, the, the professional game is at a crossroads. This is a monumental moment. And even if Phil wasn't there, I think I would, I would be tempted to go. But the fact that he's returning to public life and um, – and he's you know he's been at this career crossroads he's finally he's finally pledged allegiance to the saudis which is a stunner so i just feel like i have to be there so i'm, I'm gonna i'm sitting in carmel california right now but i'm uh i'll be in london tomorrow and it's gonna be uh it's gonna be a, a pretty wild week yeah it is so plotting your way over to london from carmel not the easiest trip to plan but you're gonna be there and not we were, we had just mentioned before we got on here, not credentialed going with a ticket, um, you know, to see, uh, to go see this, this moment in golf. And, um, what do you expect the, what are your expectations for it and your expectations for how you'll be received? Do you think you'll bump into Phil? I mean, you, you're, you're, yeah. you know, going over there. Um, you said that, that maybe the live isn't, you know, number one on your, on, on, you're not number one on their Christmas card list. Um, what are your expectations for the trip? Yeah. yeah, they haven't responded to my request for a media credential. So I'm just, I just got tickets off the website. Um, might be the only paying customer there, it seems like. But <laughs> say not a hard ticket, but not a hard ticket. I think I have low expectations for the, um, the golf. I mean, it looks like an okay golf course. I've done, I've looked at some photos and, you know, there's a, many wonderful golf courses around. London. No one ever mentions a Centurion Club, but whatever. Um, I there'll be some energy for sure. I mean, this is a big deal. Uh, a lot of a lot of people have been working hard on this for a long time, and various folks have put their professional reputations on the line, including Phil and Greg Norman and Dustin Johnson and Ricky Fowler and others. So, I, I think I think there's going to be. It, I think it's going to be an interesting. Um, just feeling in the air, not knowing what to expect. You know, come come Saturday, the final round. You know, as, as everyone knows, it's fifty-four holes, so it concludes on Saturday. And I think if you get the right mix of players, it, it could be tense. You know, some of these young guys, and I think the the Saudis have very cleverly gone after the young players, and that that's a that's as big an existential threat as anything to the tour because if they if they snatch an entire generation of young talent, that really does affect the PGA Tour. 
in a, in a pretty profound way. They they can you know the Lee Westwoods of the world. No one's going to miss them. Like they're just playing out the string. But you know, two years ago, no one had ever heard of Scotty Shuffler, and three years ago, barely knew who Colin Morikawa was. So like you know, you always have to be minting new stars. And the um, the idea that the Saudis might start gobbling these guys up, I mean that that's that's a big deal. So if you get some of these young players who have just turned pro or or just scraping by like a Chase Kepka and all of a sudden there's four million dollars in their grasp, you know, for the first place check, like that's gonna be tense. Yeah. You know, for Phil and others, it's just a glorified exhibition. I don't know how hard they're gonna grind. But um if you get the right mix on the on the leaderboard, it could be fun. Um but uh yeah, I think my reception will be interesting. Um <laughs> I'm just going to go in the side door in a possible disguise and just watch golf and soak it all up. And I'll try and talk to some, some players here and there as I can. Maybe once I'm on site, they will actually credential me. Um, I can shame them into it. So I, I have more access to the players and, and do some interviews, but you know, certainly Greg Norman, if you read this story in the telegraph where he, he claimed that I had colluded with the PGA tour to drop the excerpt right. of my book at the time when it would have the maximum damage to the Saudis. Like, no, I'm, Norman's not a fan of mine right now, and I guess the feeling is mutual. So um, I don't know what it's going to be like. It's going to be interesting, but I'm just going there to do my job, and I'm going to try and keep my head down and stay out of trouble. <laughs> Maybe wear a hat, sunglasses, whatever it takes. Um, yeah, exactly. But, but no, once you get there, they're they're. I'm I'm I don't know. The whole thing is interesting and fascinating. What you just alluded to, though, is why I think this is very real and why I don't I think from this moment, professional golf is, is maybe never the same because, right, like you said, Westwood, Mickelson, et cetera, it's not that's not what's going to change the game. It's that what if now every 21 and 22 year old is going to be presented with a 10 million dollar contract? And, you know, if the if the Saudis, if if live golf can scoop up um the next four classes of of would-be professional golfers instead of going to q school instead of you know trying to squeeze through that bottleneck that's that's serious i mean that's 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 going to change things yeah they very cleverly identified a market inefficiency which is there are thousands of aspiring professional golfers maybe tens of thousands and there's very few places where they can make a living. I mean, you can play the the Latino America tour, but you, you're very well, you know, might go broke even if you're a good a good player. And even if you have a good season, you might only make your expenses back. It, you can't really live, especially if you have a family. And so um, there are playing opportunities, but the money is so small. And the PGA tour has kind of actively worked to suppress those purses. Like they, they're sitting on a war chest, you know, but they haven't pumped it into to the corn ferry or to the the canadian tour or the the latino america the, the china you know pj tour is now defunct you know that was kind of like double a baseball and so you know lives there it's a seductive pitch hey learn your craft and make real money i i it's hard to imagine many young players won't won't take them up on the offer if it's presented and at some point they're gonna you know they'll start accruing world ranking points i think that's gonna that'll get settled uh, it's a springboard to the Asian tour, to the you know the European tour. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I think that's that's really an interesting piece of this puzzle. Um, and then what you know the Saudis clearly have the 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 war chest. You know they can play the long game. They obviously didn't get all the players they wanted in 
year one, but they've already gotten a, a lot of them. Um, but if all of a sudden Kevin Na makes $25 million in, you know, in eight tournaments, the guys who've been beating Kevin Na their whole careers on the PJ tour be like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like get I want to I want to get to that trough. And all right. I think they'll get they'll get more players in year two and they'll get even more in year three. And I mean the insidious thing about sports washing is that it works because we can only register our moral outrage so many times and then it just gets tiresome and, and people kind of tune you out. And, um, and so I, you know, yeah. the Saudis have successfully bought their way onto the European tour and other sports like uh, F1 and heavyweight boxing. And I think they've had snooker championships and all this stuff. Like, unfortunately they just, they, they bought themselves to seat the table and, you know, Dustin Johnson got very little blowback. Ricky Fowler has gotten very little blowback. Uh, I think people see them kind of as mercenaries anyway. Yeah. You know, Phil, he's taken some shrapnel, but he survived. He's back. He just cashed, you know, nine figures from the Saudis. And um, so I, I think the players are looking around saying, well, there'll be a little squawking and some, there'll be some unhappy people on social media. But really, I can I can survive this and it's, it's worth it for the money. So um, it's it's. The threat is real. The the change is coming, and how this is going to play out is it going to be the story of, of this golf year and and beyond, and years to come probably. And if folks, and I know many of folks listening have read Phil, so they know that um, some of that the check that he just cashed um, might have needed it uh, for some for some different reasons. Uh, his, I definitely want to get into the statement that he's released um, and talked about yeah. some things that was was a bit of a surprise, uh, but. In terms of, you know, you mentioned starting as as you began to cover golf and, and Greg Norman coming around at that point um, and Tim Fincham handling, sort of outmaneuvering him there. To what extent is Jay Monahan um, culpable here? Uh, there, As you mentioned, there are a lot of market inefficiencies uh, in tour golf in the way professional golf, uh, you know, uh, was sort of organized. And it was just going to take someone with it's well, we've learned now it was just going to take someone with a lot with gobs and gobs of money to break in. And and that's ultimately uh, the Saudis. Uh, what yeah. what kind of grade do you give Jay here? Yeah, I mean, it even goes back to Tim Fincham. I mean, the the it's 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 they're not going to be valedictorian, put it that way, when the grading comes along, because oh. the, the tour product has gotten very stale the organization has been very complacent you know they've they've allowed this very boring bomb and gouge style to proliferate the golf courses are overmatched and often unimaginative the tv presentations often terrible the, the tour social media offerings are among the worst in professional sports um the players are mostly disengaged um, the viewing experience when you're a fan is is when you're on site is horrendous because of the slow play and um, so they've never had competition and it shows in the product so um, you know it's just 72 holes a stroke play week after week like they, they've done very little to to rethink um, the product and you know I'm not sure if some of the things that the Saudis have on the table now are gonna are gonna work but at least they're trying, you know, the team aspects is kind of clunky, but it could be fun. Um, there's a lot of jokes about the shotgun start, but I mean, I think it makes sense to have all the players on the golf course at once. Cause 
you know, I'm in California and plenty of times I've, I've awakened and, you know, Tiger Woods playing somewhere on the East coast has already finished his round. Right. And then I still, you're still hours from the broadcast window. And then you turn on the telecast and most of the players you care about are already done. You don't even get to watch them. Um, you know, streaming is uh, mitigate that a little bit, but again, the tour streaming apps is terrible. So the, um, you know, to have all the players competing all at once, I, I think is, is it going to be kind of fun? So, and I, I could imagine that they will continue to play with the format. And, you know, I've always said like, like Zurich has, is kind of fun, but, but take it to the illogical extreme and play like a worst ball scramble and, and really like test these guys in a different way. Like, I, I think it could be, it could be great fun, but the tour is just so wedded to the the old way of doing things. So, yeah, I mean, Monaghan has, and even even his his failing attempts, like so, they're pumping 100 million dollars to the players this year with increases in the purse and all these spurious bonus programs. And you would think that would placate the the players and their their managers, but in fact, they're all pissed off because it's like, wait, you guys have been sitting on this money, and you only turn the spigot <laughs> on now when you when you had right. to because of the Saudis. Like that's our money. You're just giving it to us now. I mean, the players have always felt like the tour is not transparent, and as they've scrambled to try and, you know, the PIP, which is obviously just a slush fund to try and buy allegiance to the top stars, like all these things that they've they've cooked up to try and blunt the the, the Saudi incursion, it actually has not helped them with the players because it's like it was too little, too late, and it, it they feel like the tour was holding out on them. Yeah. Oh, now you have the money. Where was it last year or the year before? So, um, uh, Jay Monahan's looking at about a D minus right now. If we'll see how he can salvage things going forward, you know his his threats of suspending guys for life that's blown up on him because now they're just resigning. They, yeah, you know, they they didn't they dumped him before he could break up with them. Like you know, it's the classic you know middle school romance playbook, and um, and so. It just looks like like Monahan's been out maneuvered at every turn here. And this speaks a little bit, this brings us back to Phil, because in his conversation with you, uh, a, a famous, very famous phone call, um, which I want to get into um, maybe now, maybe later, but, you know, he does talk about, and whether, and at the time we said, well, maybe that, it, it sounded sort of disingenuous, but this idea that golf can be better, you know, that golf can be improved, that this is a way to improve the game, improve the tour, improve professional golf. I'm, I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said a lot of other things too, um, but maybe he's he's not wrong about that, that the PGA Tour um, that does have a, a monopoly on golf uh, that is, and and what they're doing with it isn't the best. And, and maybe whether it's Mickelson saying that or Greg Norman saying that, you know, that I don't know if they're necessarily wrong, um, right. you know, and that, that's one of the ironies here is that Phil, Phil had some, some very solid points yeah, and right. it's kind of been lost in the hubris, but, um, he, he wasn't wrong on a lot of fronts. And in fact, his, his brinksmanship was working, you know, some of the things he wanted, like the NFTs, the tour belatedly is scrambled and put up together a plan. Like he kind of won that battle. The hundred million dollars that's flowing back to the players through the purses and and the bonus programs. I mean, some of that's because of Phil's advocacy. Um, you know how other 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 things he was pushing for may may yet come true. So uh, he he was he was in the right on some of these things. Now he kind of overplayed his hand, and 
he, you know, he was so callous in acknowledging the Saudi atrocities and then dismissing them and, and the sneakiness of, of, of colluding with them and, uh, you know, in the shadows to help them get this rival tour going. A lot of attention was paid to Phil's words as you were referring to, but it was really his actions that got him in trouble with the tour and his colleagues that, that, you know, he was helping launch this, the Saudi tour as almost a de facto playing commissioner by recruiting players and, as he told me, by helping to pay for the lawyers to write the actual operating agreement. Mm. Uh, so the words had an impact, but it was really the fact that he was actively working to subvert the PGA Tour. That, that's what got him in trouble. Now, Phil would argue he was trying to make the situation better for himself and, and other top players. And in a narrow sense, that's true. But if the Saudi Tour succeeds and prospers and it attracts a big TV contract and sponsors like Mercedes and Rolex, like that's money that's getting siphoned away from the PGA tour. And so that, that's why, you know, the players lined up to criticize Phil in a way that they've never done with tiger. And I was talking to, you know, a, a guy who's been out on tour for 20 plus years. And he said to me, and this really rings true is that tiger never made himself bigger than the tour, even though he could have, and you know, tiger put money in my pocket and Phil made himself bigger than the tour. And he was trying to take money out of my pocket. So that's why Phil was so harshly criticized by his peers. It had nothing to do with, you know, the morality or, or the human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. That he was fucking with their livelihood potentially, and that's why they were upset. Right. Yeah, he was and is. Um, and it's going to be interesting. His statement issued. Um, everyone's had a chance to, if if you're on any of the social medias or pay attention to golf at all, really. Uh, Phil issued a statement about his actions it's an apology um it's you know what do you make of it it's it i can't couldn't help thinking about the book as i read it because really uh your book about phil i think is about a very complicated character and trying to show sides of a multi-sided um individual uh who presents many different faces and which face was this do you think it was just another face he went to a place where I didn't expect him to go. He talks about, I use the word addict, you know, talks about addiction and gambling. And, and I, I don't know, is, 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 that a, is that something, is that him playing just a, a, another sort of side of himself to, uh, for his advantage? I mean, there's always an element of stagecraft with Phil and, he never opens his mouth without an agenda. So, um, but I think there's there's uh, some sincerity there too. I mean, clearly he's been through a challenging period and he's had to really take stock in in a profound way. And yeah, the, the word addict, you know, addiction addict, those that's a powerful word. And mm-hmm. um, I think it was obvious, you know, if you read the book and other stories that float around that Phil's had a serious problem with gambling for him to admit it and, and to take ownership of that. And that's a big deal. I mean, we probably all have uh, folks in our life who battle addiction and, and until they're honest with themselves about it, they're never going to conquer it. And, but it also, you know, it's a, it's a daily struggle and this is something that Phil's going to have to battle. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that the gambling was out of control and created a huge amount of stress in his life. Um, and, you know, his mom gave an interview a few weeks ago to USA Today. I don't know if you saw that, uh, Tom, but he, you no, know, he was, uh, and she said, you know, he's happier than I've ever seen him and he's so at peace. 
And in a weird way, you know, maybe this book is and the follow has set Phil free. You know, there was always a, a big divide between the public and the private Phil. And people in the game knew that. And this this book is kind of a bridge between those those two lives and those two personas. And it's it's analogous to Tiger. You know, he was living a lie and his his whole life came crashing down. Um and um I, I think with Phil, you know, he might be he's been unburdened in some ways. He doesn't have he doesn't have the, the all the 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 huge corporate obligations just for starters. He's got more time. He's now he feels like he's playing for himself, you know. Um, and he's kind of reinventing himself. And if you, by speaking openly and honestly about the gambling, I mean, that's, that's probably freeing as well. Um, you know, the, the work talking about the therapy, I mean, yeah. Phil had kind of, he kind of turned into a cartoon character, right? Like in, he was sort of having a midlife crisis in before our eyes, all the preening about his calf muscles and, and how far he's hitting his driver Bombs. and, yeah, the bombs. Like, okay, buddy. Like, um, <laughs> where's the red convertible? And even right. if you look at pictures of Phil ten years ago, he's got you know a nice salt and pepper hair, and now it's jet black. Like, um, and you know, yeah. in the book, it, his nickname is what a black cherry. It's like, <laughs> you know, he's it feels it's it's been it's been interesting to watch this um, this this kind of he's flailing around on social media and elsewhere and. A more human and a more humble Phil, I think, is very appealing, and I think people are ready to cheer for that person. Now, the, the Saudi seduction complicates it because, you know, taking their blood money is, is it's going to be hard for some fans to cheer for him, and that that was part of the calculus of this big decision as he's been at this this career crossroads. But, um, you know, I think Phil wanted the money; he might have needed the money, despite what he's saying um, about you know being financially secure. Um, but he also, he's a very strident kind of self-righteous personality. He wants to be right. And he sees himself as this agent of change and this maverick. And so if he had walked away from the Saudis, it would have looked like such a political defeat. And I don't think he could really stomach that even, in, even after all this therapy and all this, uh, reflection, like he is who he is. Right. And, um, been said many times, he's gotta be the smartest guy in the room and, if if he can reinvent professional golf in his own image, like that's hugely appealing to someone with that kind of an ego. So um, it's it's fascinating that he, he's gone all in with the Saudis. Um, money's always a factor, and nobody nobody gets in bed with the Saudis if money's not involved. But there's other things at play with Phil as far as ego, as far as the need for validation, and and as far as you know being the self styled maverick. So. Um, it's going to be really interesting how this plays out for him. And there's been a lot of talk about his legacy and if this tarnishes his legacy, I mean, it, it complicates it, you know, he, it, he's, he's risking never being a Ryder cup captain. And that, that's, you know, obviously one of the highest honors in the game. Right. Um, and if this Saudi thing is a, is a total Turkey and it goes away after a few years, it, it's going to look weird, but, um, I don't know when people talk about Kurt Flood in baseball, he's celebrated. He's he's not scorned, and you know he, he ushered in the era of free agency. And you know the modern PGA Tour was, was born of of rebellion with Nicholas and Palmer in 1968, and um, it didn't it didn't affect their legacy in any way. So if you know the Saudi thing, like these terms may may yet get absorbed in some larger global schedule between the PGA Tour and the European Tour, and it may um 
you know, maybe Phil will be the guy who makes TV golf more watchable because there's going to have to be innovation. There's going to have to be change to keep up. And, you know, um, so he could I don't be know. the hero it's, yet, Alan. He, he might be the, be the hero, hero yet. yet. It's too soon to know, but it, this is a fascinating turn. There's no question. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, to think like a couple, I don't know, it's a short time ago where this all still very much just seemed like a joke. Um, and now it's come to the point where, or, you know, maybe it wasn't a joke. Maybe there, there was real money, but it was Greg Norman doing Greg Norman things and whatever. And now we've arrived at this moment where you're getting on a plane because this is a seminal moment in professional golf. Um, and this, this is, as you say, could open is, is probably it's happening. It is changing in terms of free agency, in terms of we are now going to think of professional golf as something other than just the PGA tour. Um, and yeah, right. The field in London isn't, isn't stellar, but just wait, wait a week, wait a couple weeks, wait a year and, and see what happens. Wait five years. As we said, and see what happens with the next generation of golf. And it's changing so quickly. Has anything happened? I, had to, I, I was waiting at the doctor's in the doctor's office all morning to get, uh, for an appointment. So, um, did I miss anything? Like, cause it's just, it seems to be changing by literally by, by the minute, uh, the latest updates, uh, for any folks who like myself weren't tuned in this. Yeah. Way. Well, you know, Bryson DeChambeau is still in play. I mean, he, he's, he's got the Trump golf logo and we know that the Trump courses are hosting two of these Saudi events and these, oh. he was just partying with Eric Trump. Like there's obviously there's a connection there and he's been linked from the beginning. Um, so, you know, it could, he may yet jump. Um, I mean, I keep thinking Brooks Kepka is the perfect guy for the Saudi tour because he's made his disdain clear for everyday tour events. And, you know, as a member, you have to play in 15 of them. Um, like he could, he could play eight Saudi events, make a hell of a lot more money and then just focus on the majors, which is what he, he pretends to care about. So, um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I, obviously we've seen, there's a certain demographic that's been attracted to the, the, the Saudis. It's the old guys who are just looking for one last payday, but someone like Taylor Gooch, I think he, in some ways he was the most interesting name on the list. Cause he's, yeah. he's a young dude who's high up in the world rankings and he's, he's risking a lot cause he could have a 20 year career on the PGA tour, making all that retirement money, all that FedEx cut money, all these other bonus programs. So if, if, if this does become lit, you know, litigated, I almost feel like he's going to be the show pony for all of it because, um, you know, the, the tour prevents him from playing, even though he's, he's currently a member and he's, he's earned his spot out there. Um, you know, he's, he's a fascinating one. And, and, you know, Bryson's obviously younger than, than he's a decade younger than DJ. And so the, there's more at stake for these young guys if they are giving up the PGA tour, but, um, all of them, even if they won't admit it, they're, they would love to do both. I mean, if, if this gets settled in or out of court where they could keep their tour membership, get the retirement money, get the FedEx cut money, and then just cherry pick some of the Saudi events, that's their dream. And if that's how it plays out, then all of a sudden, all the top guys are going to play these Saudi tournaments. And, um, so it's, it, this, we don't know how it's going it, to, it is all going to unfold, but there's a lot of interesting scenarios. We've heard a lot about the it's super interesting and we've heard there's figures being thrown around all over the place who knows what's real do you know what's real i have to ask uh what tiger got offered or what dj is getting or um yeah uh, i mean i've talked to a lot of people close to it I, you know supposedly tiger was offered up to 900 million dollars this is 
you know, before his car crash, but, um, oh, you know, that's a fantastical number. Um, you know, I've heard 150 for Dustin. I've heard 230 for Phil, 125 for Bryson. So uh, it has the ring of truth because these guys are giving up endorsements. You, you see, as soon as you sign with the Saudis, you're going to start getting dropped by your companies. Um, mm-hmm. That's already started to happen. And I mean, that happened with Phil. You know, Workday, his deal ex- was going to expire April 1st. And even before my book excerpt came out, Workday decided to part ways with Phil by talking to people at the company. Um, that's what I learned because he was just, the, the, the Saudi seduction was too much. They didn't want to be associated with it. And um, so, you know, there's, 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 there's a radioactivity there. Now, of course, it's also hypocritical because UPS drops Westwood and, and King Louie, but I'm sure I can still send a package by UPS over to Saudi Arabia. They'll still still do business over there and take the money, but they're yeah. trying to keep up appearances. So there's, you know, there's all these weird little um, inconsistencies. But anyway, yeah, the, the, the money is, is, has to be huge because you're giving up uh, a lot to go over there potentially. It's complicated, you know, and you look at it, and, you know, I could very well have, I just got my tank filled, right? You know, I could very well have uh, Saudi Arabian oil in my car. Um, I don't have a choice, though, at the pump to say, well, I'd like American oil versus Saudi Arabian oil. Um, it's, it's, it's a messy kind of thing um, and, and certainly is complicated. One of the complications I've been hearing a little bit about is, is some of the players, um, and maybe, again, this is just rumors, but... Um, that maybe some of their wives aren't thrilled with um, with their decision, and and I can imagine that being a real thing. How do you square this, you know, as a player with your wife? Um, if you're saying, well, we're okay now, we're we're going to be super rich. Um, the money's coming from Saudi Arabia, where they wouldn't let you drive a car, but you know, we're we're going to be wealthy. I don't know. Are you hearing anything on that front? Because well, that be, there's that more to the issue for me. There's more to the unhappy wives bit than than that. Um, so when when the players go for this European tour event into Saudi Arabia, um, this is already passed into legend that the prince hosts parties on his yachts and with with certain players. And when they get out into international waters, um, anything goes. And um, so some of those stories have begun to leak back. You're not allowed to take a cell phone on the yacht. You're like you have to hand over your phone before you get on board. But so there's no, there's no photographic evidence of, um, of some of the hijinks, but um, that, so that may be what some of the wives are expressing the displeasure about, not the, um, the oppression of women in Saudi Arabia. Um, But maybe, maybe some of the, some of the progressive uh, wives feel. (laughs) So yeah, there's, there's a few things at play there. Um, And, but that, I mean, that, that is also, you know, my colleague Michael Bamberger, like we were talking about this last night, and to him it's just sad because he's, you know, he said these guys were all golfers first. You know, what what got them in this position was a love of the game, and 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 then playing in front of crowds and showing off your skills and winning these glittering trophies and becoming part of the history. And now you're just basically tossing all that aside just for the payday because these Saudi events, you know, no one cares about them it's not going to matter who wins except for the money, but the trophy has no value. It's, it has no history. Um, and you know, you win at Riviera 
You went at Pebble Beach. That's a big deal. You're part of a larger story. Yep. You went at the Centurion Club in a 54-hole shotgun start. Um, Herbert Warren Wind is not going to rise from his grave to tell that story. It's just um, so no. I think, you know, that's the, the unhappy, you know, wife may be a, um, a straw man in this argument, but it is kind of like most of these guys are doing pretty well financially and they're respected and they're adored and they go to the same courses year after year and they have relationships with the volunteers and with the, um, you know, the host families and the tournament directors. And it, there is a family element. And now you're turning your back on all that just for the money because all that's going to evaporate. If these guys never play the tour again. You're giving up a heck of a lot sort of culturally and within the family of golf. And there's an element of scorn. I mean, you've become a mercenary. You've become a morally bankrupt, money-grubbing, um, you know, tool of an oppressive regime. And um, that's that doesn't feel as good as being a beloved, celebrated, you know, elder statesman on the PGA Tour. So uh, if they're, if these players are getting pushback, in from people close to them i mean i think some of the some of the family and friends are feeling like this doesn't feel great i mean i'm gonna miss going to pebble beach i'm gonna miss going to maui to la jolla to you know to scottsdale um you know these 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 stops where you build actual relations and and you have um and you have roots so it, it's a fraught decision i mean i was thinking about this and you know, if if you told me that I had to close down the Fire Pit Collective and I could only write for SaudiArabiaGolf.com um, for the rest of my life, but they would, you know, quadruple my salary or whatever, right. I, I wouldn't do it. If I would miss my colleagues. I'd miss the fun of, of going to all these tournaments and all these tour stops and being part of a larger story. And I mean, I have, I have kids put through college and I have material concerns like everybody else, but... Um, I just wouldn't take the money. And so I'm surprised that so many of these golfers have, to be honest. Yeah. And it brings me to looking over, you know, an excerpt from Phil, bringing us back to the book and the book that is our uh, selection of the month in the Broken Tea Society book club and an excerpt that is going to run with this podcast. Uh, this conversation will be released as a Golfer's Journal podcast as well. And there'll be an excerpt uh, of Phil from uh, from Phil, that the book, uh, that people can enjoy. And it's talking about 18 at Wingfoot. And I think it's one of the more elegant passages. Uh, there are many elegant passages in the book, Alan. Um, but the way that you talk about Phil leaving that day and passing by all these moments of history. And, you know... Unless Wingfoot decides to start hosting live golf events, um, that is the thing uh, that these players are, are going to be missing out on. Uh, the chance to walk in Bobby Jones' footsteps, the chance to uh, have their name on these hallowed walls. Um, and, that's, and you beautifully sort of capture that and that, that that's what Phil really lost on that day. Uh, and the, and his and that you know that being his greatest chance to win the U.S. Open and not doing it, um, maybe there will be others. We'll have to find out. What made you want to write this book? When we look back, when you look back to the moment you decided, oh, I, I want to dedicate, you know, my, you know, it's a huge commitment deciding to write a book, whatever subject you're giving yourself to, uh, you're giving years of your life to something. 
And Phil, at this point, when you decide to do this, he hasn't won the PGA at age, you know, at his advanced years. Uh, he hasn't gotten into this uh, this live golf event. Um, what was it about Phil? Was it this public-private Phil? Was it trying to put your finger on who he really was? What was the inspiration for saying, okay, my next book, it's going to be Phil? Yeah, well, it's a lot of those things you touched on. I, mean, I just think he's the most compelling personality in the game by far. He He's he's an A-plus trash talker. He's very smart. Not as smart as he thinks he is, but he does have an opinion on everything. Um, he's an extrovert, you know, unlike Tiger, who's an introvert. Um, and he likes to connect. And he's just, uh, there's an energy around Phil at all times. And, you know, my first year covering the tour was 1994, and that was that was Phil's second full season. So I've kind of tracked his whole career. And, I've, you know, Phil, more than almost any other modern superstar, kind of valued the press now some of it was transactional it was a chance to build his brand but um i think he he enjoyed the the jousting and he really forged personal relationships with a lot of different reporters i mean i know a lot of guys who had dinner with them or they played golf with them you can't say about that about tiger for sure um and uh so I was never one of those people phil and i always kept each other at arm's length but i was i still saw him in lots of different settings we um, and I've always been fascinated in trying to understand who this person is. I, I got lot, lots of little glimpses, but, um, so it was always on my mind. There'd be a great book about Phil and this goes back years and years. And, um, in 2012, me and my colleague, Michael Bamberger, um, we published a novel called the swinger, which did pretty well for, uh, you know, first time yeah, fiction totally. writers. And Simon Schuster signed me up for like an unspecified golf book. And it was always bubbling in the background. And I told him I wanted to do a Phil book. My editor was not that into it, funny enough. Um, and so we're talking about Jofi, right? We've we're talking about Jofi, yeah. We've thrown his name around on the podcast before. I still yeah, I mean, I love Jofi. He's the greatest. But he, he didn't really see it. And uh, so, Dude, got- it's funny you bring that up because, like, I remember year, years ago, Jofi's like, I, Alan wants to write a Phil book. Uh like, would you write it? Would you read a Phil book? You know, just like asking me just as a, as a golf fan. I'm like, yeah, I think I'd read a read a Phil book. But at that point, Phil wasn't right. doing, you know, it was before his, his nervous, his, 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 his bombs and his calves. It was before the yeah. PGA. Well, I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I guess I'd read a Phil book. Right. I, so and, uh, he yeah. got more and more interesting because like 2014 is when he throws Tom Watson under the bus and that whole Ryder right. Cup entry. And then the insider trading is 2016. And then he smacks the moving putt at Shinnecock. That's 2018. And so a, a lot is churning. Yeah. There's there's just what is going on with this guy? And so really in but I still wasn't working on the book in earnest until the pandemic hit. And then I was at home and I was bored like everyone else. I couldn't really travel. And I was like, this would be a good time to work on a book. Mm-hmm. And so um that's that's when I got serious about it. And it, it it worked out well in that I mean I I couldn't I wasn't going to tour events and and when I started going there was no access to players anyway so I wasn't that motivated to go to tour events but everybody was home and bored and so I was just I have a lot of names in my phone from you know players caddies agents uh, swing coaches tour wives and I just started calling all of them and talking about Phil and since they had nothing better to do those conversations um, stretched on and on so. It turned out to be a good time for reporting really the book. Good 
It was. And, you know, that phone interviews can be two-dimensional, but because I've been following Phil for 30 years, you know, and I was in the locker room at Wingfoot and I was, um, I was drinking champagne with him after he won at Muirfield, the Open, and all the other little ways and things I saw and experienced, I could really bring him to life in a three-dimensional way. So um, it was, it, it turned out to be great timing. And then he and then, wins a freaking PJ championship. And then he wins so. the PJ championship. I mean, that, at that point, I'm thinking like, I remember Jofi asking me that. I'm like, damn, Alan has stepped in it, man. This is unbelievable. <laughs> like to be working on a on a fill book right now. Who wouldn't yeah. love to have a fill book in their pocket um, for the PGA? And then, of course, you know, things blow up. I mean, at what point was the where was the manuscript um, when things started to get crazy with, um, you know? with the Saudis and, and live golf yeah. and, and Greg Norman. And, you know, cause it's, it's scary. It's to write a book that's walking, you know, that's touching on things in real time. I mean, gosh, it happens at the golfer's journal. Uh, if we're talking about a character or an event and we know, you know, the amount of lead time to get the book out or things going to change in the story. Well, you're right. You know, books are really inflexible um that way so so what was that process like with um you know were there late rewrites were there late editions uh, how'd that work out yeah so it's, it's even more interesting than that because so all those phone interviews i was talking about that was late 2020 uh you know fall winter 2000 into the early parts of 2021 and then in february of 2021 i left golf magazine and helped launch the fire pit collective, which hopefully some of the folks on, on the line here have checked out. Cause of course we did, we did just hire Michael Bamberger and we're pumping out a lot of cool content. And, um, and I, I, uh, underestimated how much I was going to take over my life. And so for three months, I didn't touch the book. I just like, we were working around the clock to try and get this company off the ground. And, um, so actually I called Jofi, my editor, the end of April, early May and said, I haven't touched the book in three months. I'm way behind. There's absolutely no chance this book is going to come out in 2022. I was like, how about 23 or even 24? And he's like, yeah, sure. It's evergreen. No problem. Take your time. And Joe, then, he's the best. I love yeah, Joe. <laughs> he's the best. But I've then, had that conversation myself, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, we, we've all been there. But then, like, less than two weeks later, Phil goes and he wins the PGA. And so that that Sunday oh, night, you know, yeah. Jofi sends me a text. He's like, book is due December 1st. Like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> and um when i really hadn't it. i'd done i'd banked a lot of interviews so i hadn't really typed a word so it was it was a mad scramble and and all the saudi stuff was percolating throughout the year but it was all done in the shadows like no one really knew what was going on other than phil was at the center of it so it was i was just made passing allusions to it because of the lead time of the book like i didn't know how it was going to play out after between submitting the manuscript and when the books got printed and distributed so i didn't really there wasn't much in in the book until phil called me at thanksgiving you know a week before the book was due and then he and told me everything and then i was like holy shit so i had to rewrite the last chapter for sure and then when we dropped the excerpt in february mid-february i mean the book was about to go to the printers but after you know, after everything went sideways and, and Phil went into exile, we had to rewrite. I mean, I feel like I wrote the last chapter about four times and, um, but it kept getting better and more interesting. So it was okay. That, but that is a um, fast turnaround, Alan. You went, so when did you, I mean, that's, you like, you kind of had to crash the book. I mean, if you, yeah, we took that, it down to the wire. Yeah. Um, if you're going talking November and excerpts are coming and, out February, that's really, if people don't know, like, 
Yeah, but the, I mean, the February excerpt was not from, you know, we didn't have physical books yet. I mean, we, we were still, right. it was, so it was, no, Simon Schuster moved heaven and earth. And like, I didn't even really know this, but like a lot of industries, there's supply chain issues, like paper and glue, there's a scarcity in the publishing world. And so it's even harder to be nimble and flexible because once you get in line for your, your, your printing date, you can't really, you can't change that because the, the supplies get locked in, but um, you know, they wanted to increase the, the size of the first printing and they managed to pull that off and um, they, they were phenomenal all the way through, but yeah, it was, it was extremely complex. The, the whole, um, just the way the whole thing played out. Tell me about the call, right? Um, as a, you know, as a writer, that to me, um, I'm just thinking about the logistics of it. Are you like scribbling down notes? Are you recording it? That call with Mickelson, you know, changes, you know, that's something people will write about in years to come um, because of the impact it had on, you know, one of uh, our great, you know, one of the greatest American golfers. Um and Phil yeah, I mean, then, and then on the tour and all those things. So what what was that experience? Yeah, you have to back it up a even a little further because, like in in October, Phil's agent, not agent, I'm sorry, his attorney, this guy in in Jacksonville is like right out of our Carl Hyacin novel. He um just a very colorful character. He he rang me up out of the blue, and we hadn't had any contact in years and years and years. I didn't even, I couldn't even place the name at first, you know, it just like popped up on my phone, but I didn't even know who it was. And he, um, he was calling, as he said, you know, Phil was gearing up to take on the tour in this battle for his media rights. And they wanted to hire me as a consultant. And of course I turned it down on the spot. Like it was a really weird offer that, and as I pointed out, it's the most glaring conflict of interest. I'm writing a book about Phil. I can't take his money and be his advocate. Like, I don't think no journalist or no reporter or no writer would ever say yes to that kind of offer. And that they would even float it is really weird. And it kind of tells you their headspace. And then, as I said, you know, Phil spent his career manipulating the media. And so I think they're like, oh, well, let's make this guy a consultant. We'll give him, you know, a fat check and maybe that the book will come out better. Like, it's so, it's so clumsy. Anyway. Yeah. I, so I turned that down, but you know, we, we talked at length and we had some follow-up conversations. So I knew that Phil's obsessed with this whole idea of media rights and all that. And so, but still, and I'm, I said, well, I'd like to talk to Phil for the book. I've, I've already gone to him face to face three times, you know, at Harding park at the PGA at, uh, and then at, at Torrey Pines and Pebble beach in early 2021 and, and told him I wanted to speak to him for the book. And, he thought about it and ultimately said no, which is okay. That's his prerogative. But, um, and so then out of the blue, and so the the lawyer was trying to set up an interview, but um, ultimately he got out outvoted by Phil's overprotective agent, Steve Loy. And so I was like, all right, it's not going to happen, whatever. I just kept working on the book. And then right around Thanksgiving, you know, that's when Phil texts me out of the blue and says, can we talk? He's like, I, I know you spoke to my, my lawyer, you, you know, we, you know, all these issues. I said, I want to talk to you about them. I said, okay, sure. I mean, but he said, I don't want to talk about other stuff for, for the book. I just want to talk about this. I was like, well, okay. It is not my first choice. It's not even my 10th choice as a topic, but 
I'm not going to say no. I've been trying to get this guy to talk to me for the book for, you know, a year and a half, basically. Yeah. And, um, and so, so yeah, I had super low expectations. I thought it was going to be about the minutia of the PJ Tours media policies and, <laughs> you know, NFTs and stuff I really don't care about. So I didn't know it was going to be this freighted phone call. But, um, and so I was actually driving back from the Wishbone Brawl at, um, down at, Goat Hill Park, this this charity exhibition, and yeah. I was on I five, and Phil called me, and so actually I pulled over, I had my daughter drive, and I sat in the back, and I was just taking notes on my on my computer, which is what I do for a lot of interviews, like a stenographer, mm-hmm. and um, and Phil just opened up a vein and told me all this stuff, and um, you know, it was it was a it was completely unexpected, and I, I was impressed by his candor and a little surprised, but. Um, you know, I've given the context that I've gone to him all these times and asked him to do interviews for the book. Like when he says he's going to call me and he wants to talk, like every single thing that he says is going in the book unless we expressly agree otherwise. A hundred percent. And um, he never asked to go off the record. And if he had, I would have pushed back really hard because this is my one chance to talk to him for the book. And um, he just started talking. And so, you know, did did Phil mean to say everything that he said, like going into that, that conversation? I don't know. I mean, he was, he was pretty emotional and he was pretty worked up and we talked for a long time and, and sometimes people go farther than they mean to. Um, but I don't feel it's my role to, to be his nanny. You know, he's a very smooth operator with the media and, um, you know, he told me what, what he told me. And so, um, you know, there's been, there's been some conversation about, uh, and some thoughtful discussion from other reporters and observers, like how I could have gone back to him and said, are you sure you want to say that? Um, but you know, this is not a nervous rookie doing his first ever interview. I mean, this is a master manipulator of the media. So, um, uh, anyway, as soon and as he as called as he, you and he called me and he initiated the whole thing and, you know, he certainly had an agenda. Like I think in the final analysis, he just couldn't help himself because yeah. It, you know, it's been said many times that Phil needs to be the smartest guy in the room. And in his mind, he had out, he had out Fox, Jay Monahan, and he had out Fox, Greg Norman, and he was winning all these battles. He was getting all these concessions and he had to tell me this, like this was the validation he needed. And it's so, it's a crazy turn of events that, that he just called and told me everything. And, um, I have my theories on his motivation, but you know, it's just, that's just Phil. He's an adrenaline junkie. And, you know, in, in his first public statement back in February, you know, he used the word reckless to describe his actions. And I think that's part of the fun for him. Like, man, I'm, I've got, I've got this hot information and I'm telling it to the one guy I probably shouldn't tell it to, but it's so juicy and so fun. I just want to share it. <laughs> and like, it's the equivalent of trying to slice a three iron around a Norwegian elm on the 72nd hole of the U S open when you should just pitch it out back into the fairway. Um, but that's not how he plays a game. It's not how he lives his life. And so, and I have Easy. thought about it. Like, you know, sometimes I wish that that Phil had never called me because as I said, the um, the the book was basically done. I was just applying the last coat of polish and there was already a lot of juicy bits in there that were going to get attention with the breakup with Bones and the understanding the insider trading case and his relationship with Billy Walters and turning down the Bobby Jones award from the USGA 
and uh, all of it, you know, there was an, I was breaking enough news that the book was going to get attention. And, you know, that conversation obviously turned Phil's world upside down, but it did mine as well. So I have reflected on like, would it have been, would it have been better or worse if you'd never called me? I don't know the answer, but he did. And, and once I knew that stuff, I, you know, it was like I had a duty to inform golf fans and, and stakeholders in the game what was really happening because it had all been conducted in secret. And the biggest question in golf was, you know, what does Phil want? And um, I was the only one who really knew. So, but it it's it's a crazy turn of events. I mean, I, it still baffles me to this day that he called me and told me all that stuff. The It's fascinating. There's so much... Oh gosh, Alan! I know you have a lot to do. You have to you have to book a plane to to to, to England and get over to see Liv. There's so many things to talk about. It's such a great. Uh, I think you do such a great job in the book because, um, you know, it is balanced. If people are only talking about the Saudi stuff, the Liv stuff, whatever, fine, because that's that's the big news. But I think some of the most when I read the book, the most interesting bits to me, because of course everyone was reading for the scoops. Okay, what's going to be in here that I didn't know about Phil? Um, there's stuff in here with Amy that's really interesting. There's stuff in here. The bone stuff to me was the most interesting. Um, I had no idea. And that relationship and its deterioration, I think that's a real inside look at that that people are, are going to find fascinating. The insider trading gets the most thorough look here. What have you heard? Of, is he writing a book? Is Billy, um, sorry, his last name, the escapes. Hey, Walters, yeah. Yes. Is, is, is he doing a book as oh, well? Oh, yeah, he's doing a book. And, and should Ar Phil be really worried about that? <laughs> Perhaps more worried about that one. Yeah, yeah. Armin Katayan is the co-writer. He, he wrote the Big Tiger book from a few years ago, and um, oh, that's you know he's a he's a very experienced journalist. So, um, is that a trophy book? Uh, they they no they don't have a publisher. They're just writing it on spec, and they're going to send it out into the world. Um, oh, but um, yeah, I mean, he Phil should be worried because. My interest was <clears throat> telling a very fair, balanced story, and, and you did. trying to thank you, <clears throat> trying to capture. <clears throat> I'm sorry, this this very complex individual, and you know, Billy Walters has, is not a trained journalist. You know, he's he's looking for payback, he's looking for vengeance, and yeah. so he knows a lot of stuff. <laughs> and I, I think Phil should rightfully be worried. And honestly, I think to your earlier question, you know, Phil's motivation for for this statement. I think by admitting they had a gambling problem and a gambling addiction, I think that's a preemptive strike against anything that Billy Walters will have in his book. Because, ah. <clears throat> you know, Phil can say, yeah, I already admitted it. I had a problem. Let's move on. You know, you yeah. know, because yeah. Billy knows a lot of stuff. He just, and um, it's, I think honestly, Phil's probably more worried about that book than anything that's in mine and yeah. probably should be. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as you say, there's like, there, there's a lot of things to chew on, but some of my favorite stuff in the book is very golfy. Like the, you know, the 1990 USA amateur, the play-by-play -play on that, you know, I, I and the, the, the concession of the 40 footer to Jeff Thomas, you know, that's a, that's a story I'd heard. I thought it was apocryphal, but, you know, I actually got Jeff Thomas's caddy to tell it to me. And, um, you know, all these other bits of lore, the 91 Walker Cup when Phil goes over to Ireland calls the Irish women ugly, like, and then now inevitably winds up in the most important match and, you know, pulls off this hero shot to win the Walker Cup. Like, there's just the, the Wingfoot yeah. stuff we talked about. There's, I mean, 
That is great stuff. The Jeff Thomas concession. We were talking about with my buddy and I. Um, shout out to Bill McGinnis, who played a lot of amateur golf against Jeff Thomas in New Jersey. That story blew him away, and it blows it blows me away too that Phil concedes um, that what and it Phil's got like eight foot for birdie or something or ten feet for birdie, and he concedes forty feet to Jeff. Um, yeah, it's such an alpha move. <laughs> it's such. I mean, dude. I could just imagine just picking up your marker because he knows he's going to make the putt. It's it just I would be crushed. Um, you can't come back from that. You can't. Yeah, it's oh, the ultimate. No, and he didn't. Like, and and he didn't. He didn't. <laughs> like, so, so yeah, uh, there's yeah. So uh, I, I appreciate without a doubt the live stuff is so topical and it's an important part of the book, but it's really half of one chapter. I mean, it's such a big really complicated is. life that there's so much else. Uh, to, to talk about. And it was fun to get into all of it for, you know, uh, and bring all these stories together in one place for, for golf fans. And you did it really, really well, Alan. We wish you all the success, everyone. Go check out the book, you know, in, and then come join the Broken Tea Society book club so you can talk about it even more because there is a lot there to talk about. Um, looking forward to what you find in England. Safe travels over there. Um, you know, post some pics. I, you know, can you just like... The merch tent, all right. Um, I just want to see what that looks like. Can you and and hopefully bring back um, a T-shirt of the uh, I don't know of of the teams. I'll pay extra large. I'm an extra large. I'll Venmo the cash for some uh, for some live merch because I think that at least yeah, for a little I mean... while will be pretty fun to have to be sporting. Maybe uh, the cliques. Um, looking for a clique. I know. I feel like. T-shirt. Yeah, I feel like I'm an anthropologist, you know, going over to, to study this this ancient tribe. This is not even about sports, really. So yeah, all that stuff is of great interest to me. I, your request is noted, Tom. I will. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the merch offerings could be wild. Totally. <laughs> um, well, enjoy yourself and safe travels. Thank you so much for your time, Alan. And during this busy time, you're the best. And uh, wish you all the success with the book. Um, and uh, hope to see you out there soon. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for everyone for tuning in. Um, uh, I, I appreciate, you know, I appreciate the interest and then and, and that it, it's been gratifying for me that people just can still get excited or stirred up by a book. You know, it's like such an ancient form and we're in such a, uh, a digital world and the instant gratification of social media and, and typing deadline stories for the Internet. But to nurture a book for so long and just put out into the world. It's just fun that people are responding to it. So I, I appreciate you having me on to talk about it. I know exactly what you're talking about, my man. I know very you well, do. Very well said. Um, <laughs> awesome. Awesome stuff. All right. Be well. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye.